Hello and a very warm welcome to another episode of the Tips and Advice for Business podcast. Coming up, you know that sharing your company's income with your spouse or civil partner can save tax, but you're not sure how to do this in practice to secure the maximum tax advantage. Keep listening and all will be revealed. Plus, several employees are on zero hours contracts and you need to calculate their holiday entitlement. Now you've heard that you should no longer use a 12.07% figure. Is that correct? And please don't forget to visit indicator-flm to download our series of free mini guides to tax and HR matters. There's really no obligation whatsoever. You're listening to Tips and Advice for Business, the weekly podcast that trawls through the latest business news, legislation and case law, distilling often complex legal and tax requirements into bite-sized advice and realistic solutions to everyday challenges. And all this in just a few short minutes, because we know that your time is precious. The Tips and Advice for Business podcast is freely available on all the usual platforms such as Spotify, Apple, Amazon and Deezer and is brought to you by those ever so nice people at Indicator FL Memo. For supporting information, please visit indicator-flm.co.uk. Your host today is Duncan Callow, solicitor and publisher. So you know that sharing your company's income with your spouse can save tax, but you're not sure how to do this in practice for the maximum tax benefit. What tips or traps should you be aware of? Well, of course, it is pretty well known that sharing your company's income with your spouse or civil partner can reduce the overall tax payable on it. One method of achieving this is to pay your spouse or partner a salary from the business. Obviously, that's the easiest thing to do, just put them on the payroll. But the drawback is that a salary must be in return for work done for the company or it isn't entitled to tax relief for the expense. In other words, you can't just put somebody on the salary and pay them £1,000 a month, whatever the figure may be. In any event, your spouse or partner may not have the time or expertise to do the work, and if there are other directors, they may not approve of the arrangement, perhaps because they've got a spouse or partner that they also want to put on the payroll. An alternative is to give shares in your company to your spouse or partner. Unlike salary, this doesn't require them to work in return, But the downside of the arrangement is that your company can only pay dividends out of profits it hasn't already paid out to shareholders. And there is something to be aware of here, a small trap, and that is that if there are other shareholders in the company, you may need their permission before transferring any of your shares. There's nothing in company law to prevent you doing this, but a shareholders agreement might include a restriction or conditions on share transfers. So we've talked then about putting somebody on the payroll. We've talked about gifting shares. But what about sharing dividends? What's the tax efficiency position there? Well, by sharing dividends, you'll save income tax only if your spouse or partner pays at a lower rate of tax than you. Conversely, if they pay tax at a higher rate than you, giving shares to your spouse or partner will increase the overall tax bill. And this can make sharing company income with your spouse or partner a tax inefficient plan if your respective incomes rise and fall unpredictably as is often the case with people at director level. What's the solution? Well, it's for your company to pay different amounts of dividends to you and your spouse or partner according to what other income each of you has. The best way 
for this to be done is for your company to issue a different class of shares to you and your spouse or partner. For example, it could issue you with ordinary A shares and your spouse with ordinary B shares. It's really not rocket science. But to prevent trouble with HMRC, the shares should have identical rights and conditions. So this is all well and good. This is the theory. But let's look at a practical example to see how the savings might stack up. So let's look at Acom Limited, which is owned by John and his wife, Josie. John has 50 ordinary A shares and Josie has 50 ordinary B shares. In 22-23, John is a higher rate taxpayer on his salary from his main job, whereas Josie's income is £30,000 and is therefore a basic rate taxpayer. Now, Acom has sufficient profits to allow it to pay dividends of up to £50,000 in 22-23. Maximum tax efficiency is achieved if Josie receives a dividend of £20,270. Why? That's to increase her taxable income to the basic rate threshold of £50,270 so that she pays no higher rate tax. And for maximum tax efficiency, John should not be paid a dividend. This can be achieved because ACOM can pay different rates of dividend to John and Josie. If in later years John is a basic rate taxpayer, while Josie pays the higher rate, the split of dividends can be changed to make use of John's basic, John's basic rate band. So you see what a flexible arrangement this can be to suit individual circumstances. One final point to note, and that is that Whilst HMRC accepts tax planning using different classes of shares, what we call alphabet shares, it will attack arrangements where the rate of dividend paid on one class of share doesn't leave enough profits in the company to allow a dividend, even if, even if one is not paid, at a similar rate on the other class or classes of ordinary shares. So, in summary, creating different classes of ordinary shares in your company and giving some to your spouse or partner allows the company to pay different rates of dividends to you from year to year. That way, the rate of dividend can be tailored to make maximum use of your respective tax-free allowances and lower rate bands. Hopefully, we've explained the best way or the most effective ways to share company profits with your spouse or civil partners. So you've got several employees who are on zero hours contracts. Admittedly, these type of contracts aren't particularly uh, popular, but they do offer employers a very flexible source of labour. Trouble is, you need to calculate what their holiday entitlement should have been over the Jubilee weekend and have heard that you shouldn't be using the 12.07% figure, which you've done in the past. So how should you be calculating their entitlement? Well, full-time employees working five days a week, the 5.6 weeks a statutory entitlement under the working time regulations equates to 28 days per year. But figuring out the amount for those on zero hours contracts is trickier as it needs to be based on, on the average number of hours from the last 52 weeks in which they worked and thus earned pay. This means that you need to exclude weeks that they didn't work at all when working out the average. And you may also need to go back more than 52 weeks so that you can find 52 weeks that they did actually work. Zero hours workers accrue holiday entitlement in the same way as full-time or part-time employees, but the only difference is that there may be breaks in employment. A casual worker, for instance, may work for two weeks in December and not work again until April. So although the the principle sounds simple in theory, sometimes the calculation of the worker's entitlement can be quite complicated. So given the difficulty of calculating these 
the holiday pay for zero hours contract workers, it has become common practice for employers to treat these workers as having accrued holiday pay at the rate of 12.07% of the hours they've worked. Here's an example. An employee with a zero hours contract works 20 hours per week at your company. To work out how much they they get from that week, you say 12.07% of 20 hours. That equates to 2.41 hours of paid time off. However, this 12.07% rule only works if the employee works on average over a 52-week period, the same number of hours each week. But there are problems with this method. Although it's accurate in some cases, it may not always comply with the working time regulations. Let's look at another example. An employee earns £10 per hour and has been on the payroll for 22 weeks, but only worked 10 of them and 210 hours in total. Under the 12.07% method, they've worked 25.35 hours of pay time off, so £253.50 holiday pay. But the calculation should be based on the average for the weeks the employee worked, i.e. 210 divided by 10. So the average hours worked is 21 in a week. So their holiday entitlement after 22 weeks should be 49.75 hours or £497.50 in in holiday pay. So you can see why... You need to take care when calculating holiday pay for uh, workers on zero hours contracts. And in fact, you shouldn't be using the 12.07% of the hours worked figure to calculate holiday pay as it can result in you underpaying holiday pay where an employee on zero hours has some weeks that they don't work at all. Instead, you'll need to calculate the employee's average weekly hours based on a 52-week reference period. Well, can you believe it? We've reached the end of another episode of the Tips and Advice for Business podcast. But don't worry, we'll be back again soon and we'll be considering why calling a man bald is sex-based harassment. Whatever next. Plus, do you have to give pay time off work for any of your staff to attend a wedding? But for now, thank you for sharing your time with us and goodbye. You've been listening to the Tips and Advice for Business podcast. Every week we trawl through the latest business news, legislation and case law, distilling often complex legal and tax requirements into bite-sized tips, advice and solutions. For more information about our products and services, please visit indicator-flm.co.uk. Indicator-flm.co.uk